0: The Dred Scott Decision, read from Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2, by John G. Nicolay and John Hay. Read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in November 2015. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 4 the Dred Scott decision deep and widespread as hitherto had been the slavery agitation created by the repeal of the Missouri compromise and by the consequent civil war in Kansas, an event entirely unexpected to the public at large suddenly doubled its intensity. This was the announcement two days after Buchanan's inauguration of the decision of the Supreme Court of the United States in the Dred Scott case this celebrated case had arisen as follows two or three years before the nebraska bill was thought of a suit was begun by a negro named dred scott in a local court in st louis missouri to recover the freedom of himself and his family from slavery He alleged that his master, one Dr. Emerson, an army surgeon living in Missouri, had taken him as his slave to the military post at Rock Island in the state of Illinois and afterwards to Fort Snelling, situated in what was originally Upper Louisiana, but was at that time part of Wisconsin territory and now forms part of Minnesota. While at this latter post, Dred Scott, with his master's consent, married a colored woman, also brought as a slave from Missouri, and of this marriage two children were born. All this happened between the years 1834 and 1838. Afterwards, Dr. Emerson brought Dred Scott and his family back to Missouri in this suit they now claimed freedom because during the time of residence with their master at these military posts slavery was there prohibited by positive law namely at rock island by the ordinance of seventeen eighty seven and later by the constitution of illinois at fort snelling by the missouri compromise acts of eighteen twenty and other acts of congress relating to wisconsin territory the local court in st louis before which this action was brought appears to have made short work of the case it had become settled legal doctrine by lord mansfield's decision in the somerset case rendered four years before our declaration of independence that the state of slavery is of such a nature that it is incapable of being introduced on any reasons moral or political but only positive law it is so odious that nothing can be suffered to support it but positive law. End quote. The learned Chief Justice therefore ordered that Somerset, being claimed as a Virginia slave brought by his master into England, when it was attempted to carry him away against his will, should be discharged from custody or restraint because there was no positive law in England to support slavery the doctrine was subsequently modified by another english chief justice lord stowell in eighteen twenty seven to the effect that absence of positive law to support slavery in england only operates to suspend the master's authority which is revived if the slave voluntarily returns into an english colony where slavery does exist by positive law The states of the Union naturally inherited and retained the common law of England, and the principles and maxims of English jurisprudence not necessarily abrogated by the change of government, and among others this doctrine of Lord Mansfield. Unlike England, however, where there was no slavery and no law for or against it, some of the American states had positive laws establishing slavery, others positive laws prohibiting it. Lord Mansfield's doctrine, therefore, enlarged and strengthened by American statutes and decisions, had come to be substantially this. Slavery, being contrary to natural right, exists only by virtue of local law. If the master takes his slave, for permanent residence, into a jurisdiction where slavery is prohibited, the slave thereby acquires a right to his freedom everywhere. On the other hand, Lord Stowell's doctrine was similarly enlarged and strengthened, so as to allow the master right of transit and temporary sojourn in free states and territories, without suspension or forfeiture of his authority over the slave. Under the complex American system of government, in which the Federal Union and the several states each claimed sovereignty and independent action within certain limitations, it became the theory and practice that towards each other the several states occupied an attitude of foreign nations, which relation was governed by international law, and that the principle of comity alone controlled the recognition and enforcement by any state of the law of any other state under this theory the courts of slave states had generally accorded freedom to slaves even when acquired by the laws of a free state and reciprocally the courts of free states had enforced the master's right to his slave where that right depended on the laws of a slave state in this spirit and conforming to this established usage the local court of missouri declared dred scott and his family free the claimant loath to lose these four human chattels carried the case to the supreme court of the state of missouri where at its march term eighteen fifty two it was reversed and the decree rendered that these negroes were not entitled to freedom Three judges formed the court, and two of them joined in an opinion bearing internal evidence that it was prompted not by considerations of law and justice, but by a spirit of retaliation growing out of the ineradicable antagonism of freedom and slavery. Every state, says the opinion, has the right of determining how far in a spirit of comity it will respect the laws of other states those laws have no intrinsic right to be enforced beyond the limits of the state for which they are enacted. The respect allowed them will depend altogether on their conformity to the policy of our institutions. No state is bound to carry into effect enactments conceived in a spirit hostile to that which pervades her own laws. It is a humiliating spectacle to see the courts of a state confiscating the property of her own citizens by the command of a foreign law, times now are not as they were when the former decisions on this subject were made since then not only individuals but states have been possessed with a dark and fell spirit in relation to slavery whose gratification is sought in the pursuit of measures whose inevitable consequence must be the overthrow and destruction of our government under such circumstances it does not behoove the state of missouri to show the least countenance to any measure which might gratify this spirit she is willing to assume her full responsibility for the existence of slavery within her limits nor does she seek to share or divide it with others to this partisan bravado the third judge replied with a dignified rebuke in his dissenting opinion he said as citizens of a slave-holding state we have no right to complain of our neighbors of illinois because they introduce into their state constitution a prohibition of slavery nor has any citizen of missouri who removes with his slave to illinois a right to complain that the fundamental law of the state to which he removes and in which he makes his residence dissolves the relation between him and his slave it is as much his own voluntary act as if he had executed a deed of emancipation there is with me nothing in the law relating to slavery which distinguishes it from the law on any other subject or allows any more accommodation to the temporary public excitements which are gathered around it in this state it has been recognized from the beginning of the government as a correct position in law that a master who takes his slave to reside in a state or territory where slavery is prohibited thereby emancipates his slave citing cases but the supreme court of missouri so far from standing alone on this question is supported by the decisions of other slave states including those in which it may be supposed that there was the least disposition to favor emancipation citing cases times may have changed public feeling may have changed but principles have not and do not change, and in my judgment there can be no safe basis for judicial decision but in those principles which are immutable." End quote. These utterances, it must be remembered, occurred in the year eighteen fifty two, when all slavery agitation was supposed to have been forever settled they show conclusively that the calm was superficial and delusive and that this deep-reaching contest was still as before the adjustment of eighteen fifty actually transforming the various institutions of society Gradually, and as yet unnoticed by the public, the motives disclosed in these opinions were beginning to control courts of justice, and popular discussion and excitement were not only shaping legislation, but changing the tenor of legal decisions throughout the country. Not long after the judgment by the Supreme Court of Missouri, Dred Scott and his family were sold to a man named Sanford, who was a citizen of New York. This circumstance afforded a ground for bringing a similar action in a federal tribunal, and accordingly Dred Scott once more sued for freedom in the United States Circuit Court at Saint Louis. The case was tried in May, eighteen fifty four, and a decree rendered that they quote, "were negro slaves the lawful property" end quote, of Sanford as a final effort to obtain justice they appealed by writ of error to the supreme court of the united states the highest judicial tribunal of the nation before this court of last resort the case was argued a first time in the spring of eighteen fifty six the country had been for two years in a blaze of political excitement civil war was raging in kansas Congress was in a turmoil of partisan discussion, a presidential election was impending, and the whole people were anxiously noting the varying phrases of party politics. Few persons knew there was such a thing as the Dred Scott case on the docket of the Supreme Court, but those few appreciated the importance of the points it involved, and several distinguished lawyers volunteered to take part in the argument. Two questions were presented to the court. First, is Dred Scott a citizen entitled to sue? Secondly, did his residence at Rock Island and at Fort Snelly, under the various prohibitions of slavery existing there, work his freedom? The Supreme Court was composed of nine justices, namely, Chief Justice Tanney and Associate Justices McLean, Wayne, Catron, Daniel, Nelson, Greer, Curtis, and Campbell there was at once manifested among the judges not only a lively interest in the questions presented but a wide difference of views as to the manner of treating them consultations of the supreme court are always shrouded in inviolable secrecy but the opinions afterwards published indicate that the political aspects of slavery which were then convulsing the country from the very first found a certain sympathy and reflection in these grave judicial deliberations the discussion yet turned upon certain merely technical rules to be applied to the pleadings under review, and ostensibly to give time for further examination, the case was postponed and a re-argument ordered for the next term. It may, however, be suspected that the nearness of the presidential election had more to do with this postponement than did the exigencies of the law. The presidential election came, and Mr. Buchanan was chosen soon after the court met to begin its long winter term and about the middle of december eighteen fifty six the dred scott case was once more elaborately argued again occupying the attention of the court for four successive days as it had also done in the first hearing the eminent counsel after passing lightly over mere technical subtleties discussed very fully what was acknowledged to be the leading point in the controversy namely whether congress had power under the constitution to prohibit slavery in the federal territories as it had done by the missouri compromise act and various other laws it was precisely the policy or impolicy of this and similar prohibitions which formed the subject of contention in party politics the question of their constitutional validity was certain to take even a higher rank in public interest When, after the second argument, the judges took up the case in conference for decision, the majority held that the judgment of the Missouri Federal Tribunal should simply be affirmed on its merits. In conformity to this view, Justice Nelson was instructed to prepare an opinion to be read as the judgment of the Supreme Court of the United States. Such a paper was thereupon duly written by him of the following import. It was a question, he thought, whether a temporary residence in a free state or territory could work the emancipation of a slave it was the exclusive province of each state by its legislature or courts of justice to determine this question for itself this determined the federal courts were bound to follow the state's decision the supreme court of missouri had decided dred scott to be a slave in two cases tried since the same judgment had been given though former decisions had been otherwise this must now be admitted as the settled law of the state which he said is conclusive of the case of this court this very narrow treatment of the points at issue, having to do with the mere lifeless machinery of the law, was strikingly criticized in the dissenting opinion afterwards read by Justice McLean, a part of which, by way of anticipation, may properly be quoted here. He denied that it was exclusively a Missouri question. Quote, it involves a right claimed under an act of congress and the constitution of illinois and which cannot be decided without the consideration and construction of those laws rights sanctioned for twenty-eight years ought not and cannot be repudiated with any semblance of justice by one or two decisions influenced as declared by a determination to counteract the excitement against slavery in the free states Having the same rights of sovereignty as the state of Missouri in adopting a constitution, I can perceive no reason why the institutions of Illinois should not receive the same consideration as those of Missouri. The Missouri court disregards the express provisions of an act of Congress and the constitution of a sovereign state, both of which laws for twenty-eight years it had not only regarded but carried into effect if a state court may do this on a question involving the liberty of a human being what protection do the laws afford had the majority of the judges carried out their original intention and announced their decision in the form in which justice nelson under their instruction wrote it the case of dred scott would after a passing notice have gone to a quiet sleep under the dust of the law libraries a far different fate was in store for it the nation was then being stirred to its very foundation by the slavery agitation the party of pro-slavery reaction was for the moment in the ascendant and as by an irresistible impulse the supreme court of the united states was swept from its hitherto impartial judicial moorings into the dangerous seas of politics before judge nelson's opinion was submitted to the judges in conference for final adoption as the judgment of the court a movement seems to have taken place among the members not only to change the ground of the decision but also greatly to enlarge the field of inquiry it is stated by one of the participants in that memorable transaction, Justice Campbell, that this occurred, quote, upon a motion of Mr. Justice Wayne, who stated that the case had created public interest and expectation, that it had been twice argued, and that an impression existed that the questions argued would be considered in the opinion of the court, he further says that the apprehension has been expressed by others of the court that the court would not fulfil a public expectation or discharge its duties by maintaining silence upon these questions and my impression is that several opinions had already been begun among the members of the court in which a full discussion of the case was made before justice wayne made this proposal the exact time when this movement was begun cannot now be ascertained the motives which prompted it can be inferred by recalling contemporaneous political events a great controversy divided public opinion whether slavery might be extended or should be restricted the missouri compromise had been repealed to make such an extension possible the term of that repeal was purposely couched in ambiguous language Kansas and Nebraska were left perfectly free to form and regulate their domestic institutions in their own way, subject only to the Constitution of the United States. Whether under the Constitution slavery could be excluded from the federal territories was affirmed by Northern and denied by Southern Democrats. Northern and Southern Democrats, acting together in the Cincinnati National Convention, had ingeniously avoided any solution of this difference. A twofold interpretation had enabled that party to elect Mr. Buchanan not by its own popular strength, but by the division of its opponents. Notwithstanding its momentary success, unless it could develop new sources of strength, the party had only a precarious hold upon power its majority in the senate was waning in kansas free state immigration was outstripping the south in numbers and checkmating her in border strife according to the existing relative growth in sectional representation and sectional sentiment the balance of power was slowly but steadily passing to the north Out of this doubt and difficulty, there was one pathway that seemed easy and certain. All the individual utterances from the Democratic Party agreed that the meaning of the words subject to the Constitution was a question for the courts. This was the original compact between Northern and Southern Democrats in caucus when Douglas consented to repeal douglas shorn of his prestige by his defeat for the presidential nomination must accept conditions from his successful rival the dred scott case afforded the occasion for a decision of the nine judges on the supreme bench seven were democrats and of these five were appointed from slave states a better opportunity for the south to obtain a favorable dictum could never be expected to arise a declaration by the supreme court of the united states that under the constitutional congress possessed no power to prohibit slavery in the federal territories would by a single breath end the old and begin a new political era congress was in session and the political leaders were assembled at washington political topics excluded all other conversation or thought politics reddened the plains of kansas politics had recently desecrated the senate chamber with a murderous personal assault politics contended greedily for the spoils of a new administration politics nursed a tacit conspiracy to nationalize slavery the slavery sentiment ruled society ruled the senate ruled the executive mansion it is not surprising that this universal influence flowed in at the one door of the national hall of justice that it filtered through the very walls which surrounded the consulting-room of the supreme court the judges were after all but men they dined they talked they exchanged daily personal and social courtesies with the political world curiosity friendship patriotism led them to the floors of congress to listen to the great debates Official ceremony called them into the presence of the President, of legislators, of diplomats. They were feasted, flattered, questioned, reminded of their great opportunity, tempted with the suggestion of their supreme authority. Footnote 4. A striking example may be found in the utterance of Attorney General Caleb Cushing of the retiring Pierce administration in a little parting address to the Supreme Court, March 4, 1857. yours is not the guaranteed hand of the soldier nor yours the voice which commands armies rules cabinets or leads senates but though you are none of these yet you are backed by all of them theirs is the external power which sustains your moral authority you are the incarnate mind of the political body of the nation in the complex institutions of our country, you are the pivot point upon which the rights and liberties of all, government and people alike, turn. Or rather, you are the central light of constitutional wisdom around which they perpetually revolve. Long may this court retain the confidence of our country as the great conservators, not of the private peace only, but of the sanctity and integrity of the Constitution. End quote published in the national intelligencer march fifth eighteen fifty seven and footnote they could render their names illustrious they could honour their states they could do justice to the south they could perpetuate their party they could settle the slavery question they could end sectional hatred extinguish civil war preserve the union save their country advanced age physical feebleness party bias the political ardor of the youngest and the satiety of the eldest all conspired to draw them under the insidious influence of such considerations one of the judges in official language frankly avowed the motive and object of the majority of the court Quote, this case he wrote involves private rights of value and constitutional principles of the highest importance about which there had become such a difference of opinion that the peace and harmony of the country required the settlement of them by judicial decision this language betrays the confusion of ideas and misconception of authority which tempted the judges beyond their proper duty required only to decide a question of private rights they thrust themselves forward to sit as umpires in a quarrel of parties and factions in an evil hour they yielded to the demands of public interest and resolved to fulfil public expectation justice wayne proposed that the chief justice should write an opinion on all of the questions as the opinion of the court This was assented to, some reserving to themselves to qualify their assent, as the opinion might require. Others of the court proposed to have no question, save one, discussed. The extraordinary proceeding was calculated to touch the pride of Justice Nelson. He appears to have given it a kind of sullen acquiescence. I was not present, he wrote, when the majority decided to change the ground of the decision, and assigned the preparation of the opinion to the chief justice, and when advised of the change, I simply gave notice that I should read the opinion I had prepared as my own, and which is the one on file. Quote. From this time the pens of other judges were busy, and in the inner political circles of Washington the case of Dred Scott gradually became a shadowy and portentous cause celebre the first intimation which the public at large had of the coming new dictum was given in mr buchanan's inaugural the fact that he did not contemplate such an announcement until his arrival in washington leads to the inference that it was prompted from high quarters in congressional and popular discussions the question of the moment was at what period in the growth of a territory its voters might exclude or establish slavery referring to this mr buchanan said it is a judicial question which legitimately belongs to the supreme court of the united states before whom it is now pending and will it is understood be speedily and finally settled to their decision in common with all good citizens i shall cheerfully submit whatever this may be the popular acquiescence being thus invoked by the presidential voice and example the court announced its decision two days afterwards march sixth eighteen fifty seven the essential character of the transaction impressed itself upon the very form of the judgment if indeed it may be called at all by that name chief justice tanney read the opinion of the court justices nelson wayne daniel Greer catron and campbell each read a separate and individual opinion agreeing with the chief justice on some points and omitting or disagreeing on others or arriving at the same result by different reasoning and in the same manner differing from one another the two remaining associate justices mclean and curtis read emphatic dissenting opinions thus the collective utterance of the bench resembled the speeches of a town meeting rather than the decision of a court and employed two hundred and forty printed pages of learned legal disquisition to order the simple dismissal of a suit the opinion read by chief justice tanney was long and elaborate and the following were among its leading conclusions That the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States do not include nor refer to Negroes otherwise than as property, that they cannot become citizens of the United States nor sue in the federal courts. That Dred Scott's claim to freedom by reason of his residence in Illinois was a Missouri question, which Missouri law had decided against him. That the Constitution of the United States recognizes slaves as property and pledges the federal government to protect it and that the missouri compromise act and like prohibitory laws are unconstitutional that the circuit court of the united states has no jurisdiction in the case and could give no judgment in it and must be directed to dismiss the suit this remarkable decision challenged the attention of the whole people to a degree never before excited by any act of their courts of law multiplied editions were at once printed scattered broadcast over the land read with the greatest avidity and earnestly criticized the public sentiment regarding it immediately divided generally on existing party lines the south and the democrats accepting and commending the north and the republicans spurning and condemning it The great anti-slavery public was not slow in making a practical application of its dogmas, that a sweeping and revolutionary exposition of the Constitution had been attempted when confessedly the case and question had no right to be in court, that an evident partisan dictum of national judges had been built on an avowed partisan decision of state judges, that both the legislative and judicial authority of the nation had been trifled with that the settler's sovereignty in kansas consisted only of the southern planter's right to bring his slaves there and that if under the property theory the constitution carries slaves to the territories it would by the same inevitable logic carry it into free states but much more offensive to the northern mind than his conclusions of law were the language and historical assertions by which chief justice tanney strove to justify them Quote, in the opinion of the court said he the legislation and histories of the times and the language used in the declaration of independence show that neither the class of persons who had been imported as slaves nor their descendants whether they had become free or not were then acknowledged as a part of the people nor intended to be included in the general words used in that memorable instrument it is difficult at this day to realize the state of public opinion in relation to that unfortunate race which prevailed in the civilized and enlightened portions of the world at the time of the declaration of independence and when the constitution of the united states was framed and adopted but the public history of every european nation displays it in a manner too plain to be mistaken They had for more than a century before been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. He was bought and sold and treated as an ordinary article of merchandise and traffic whenever a profit could be made by it. End quote. Quoting the provisions of several early slave codes, he continued. Quote, They show that a perpetual and impassable barrier was intended to be erected between the white race and the one which they had reduced to slavery, and governed as subjects with absolute and despotic power, and which they then looked upon as so far below them in the scale of created beings, that intermarriages between white persons and negroes or mulattoes were regarded as unnatural and immoral, and punished as crimes, not only in the parties, but in the person who joined them in marriage and no distinction in this respect was made between the free negro or mulatto and the slave but this stigma of the deepest degradation was fixed upon the whole race referring to the phrase in the declaration of independence which asserts that all men are created equal he remarked the general words above quoted would seem to embrace the whole human family and if they were used in a similar instrument at this day would be so understood but it is too clear for dispute that the enslaved african race were not intended to be included and formed no part of the people who framed and adopted this declaration for if the language as understood in that day would embrace them the conduct of the distinguished men who framed the declaration of independence would have been utterly and flagrantly inconsistent with the principles they asserted and instead of the sympathy of mankind to which they so confidently appealed they would have deserved and received universal rebuke and reprobation he then applied the facts thus assumed as follows the only two provisions which point to them and include them treat them as property and make it the duty of the government to protect it no other power in relation to this race is to be found in the constitution no one we presume supposes that any change in public opinion or feeling in relation to this unfortunate race in the civilized nations of europe or in this country should induce the court to give to the words of the constitution a more liberal construction in their favor than they were intended to bear when the instrument was framed and adopted it is not only the same in words but the same in meaning and delegates the same powers to the government and reserves and secures the same rights and privileges to the citizen and as long as it continues to exist in its present form it speaks not only in the same words but with the same meaning and intent with which it spoke when it came from the hands of its framers and was voted on and adopted by the people of the united states End quote this cold and pitiless historical delineation of the bondage ignorance and degradation of the unfortunate kidnapped africans and their descendants in a bygone century as an immutable basis of constitutional interpretation was met by loud and indignant protest from the north the people and press of that section seized upon the salient phrase of the statement and applying it in the present tense accused the chief justice with saying that a negro has no rights which a white man is bound to respect This was certainly a distortion of his exact words and meaning. yet the exaggeration was more than half excusable, in view of the literal and unbending rigor with which he proclaimed the constitutional disability of the entire African race in the United States, and denied their birthright in the Declaration of Independence. His unmerciful logic made the black before the law less than a slave, it reduced him to the status of a horse or a dog, a bale of dry goods, or a block of stone." against such a debasement of any living image of the divine maker the resentment of the public conscience of the north was quick and unsparing had chief justice tanney's delineation been historically correct it would have been nevertheless unwise and unchristian to embody it in the form of a disqualifying legal sentence and an indelible political brand but its manifest untruth was clearly shown by justice curtis in his dissenting opinion he reminded the chief justice that at the adoption of the constitution in five of the thirteen original states colored persons then possessed the elective franchise and were among those by whom the constitution was ordained and established if so it is not true in point of fact that the constitution was made exclusively by the white race and that it was made exclusively for the white race is in my opinion not only an assumption not warranted by anything in the constitution but contradicted by its opening declaration that it was ordained and established by the people of the united states for themselves and their posterity and as free-coloured persons were then citizens of at least five states and so in every sense part of the people of the united states they were among those for whom and whose posterity the constitution was ordained and established elsewhere in the same opinion he said i shall not enter into any examination of the existing opinions of that period respecting the african race nor into any discussion concerning the meaning of those who asserted in the declaration of independence that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness my own opinion is that a calm comparison of these assertions of universal abstract truths and of their own individual opinions and acts would not leave these men under any reproach of inconsistency that the great truths they asserted on that solemn occasion they were ready and anxious to make effectual wherever a necessary regard to circumstances which no statesman can disregard without producing more evil than good would allow and that it would not be just to them nor true in itself to allege that they intended to say that the creator of all men had endowed the white race exclusively with the great natural rights which the declaration of independence asserts justice mclean in his dissenting opinion completed the outline of the true historical picture in accurate language quote, i prefer the lights of madison hamilton and jay as a means of construing the constitution in all its bearings rather than to look behind that period into the traffic which is now declared to be piracy and punished with death by christian nations i do not like to draw the sources of our domestic relations from so dark a ground our independence was a great epoch in the history of freedom and while i admit the government was not made especially for the colored race yet many of them were citizens of the new england states and exercised the rights of suffrage when the constitution was adopted and it was not doubted by any intelligent person that its tendencies would greatly ameliorate their condition many of the states on the adoption of the constitution or shortly afterwards took measures to abolish slavery within their respective jurisdictions and it is a well-known fact that a belief was cherished by the leading men south as well as north that the institution of slavery would gradually decline until it would become extinct the increased value of slave labor in the culture of cotton and sugar prevented the realization of this expectation like all other communities and states the south were influenced by what they considered to be their own interests but if we are to turn our attention to the dark ages of the world why confine our view to colored slavery on the same principles white men were made slaves all slavery has its origin in power and is against right End quote to the constitutional theory advanced by the chief justice that congress cannot exercise sovereign powers over federal territories and hence cannot exclude slave property from them justices mclean and curtis also opposed a vigorous and exhaustive argument which the most eminent lawyers and statesmen of that day deemed conclusive the historical precedents alone ought to have determined the issue The judicial mind of this country, state and federal," said McLean, "has agreed on no subject within its legitimate action with equal unanimity as on the power of Congress to establish territorial governments. No court, state or federal, no judge or statesman, is known to have had any doubts on this question for nearly sixty years after the power was exercised." And Curtis added, Here are eight distinct instances, beginning with the first Congress and coming down to the year 1848, in which Congress has excluded slavery from the territory of the United States, and six distinct instances in which Congress organized governments of territories by which slavery was recognized and continued, beginning also with the first Congress and coming down to the year 1822 these acts were severally signed by seven presidents of the united states beginning with general washington and coming regularly down as far as mr john quincy adams thus including all who were in public life when the constitution was adopted if the practical construction of the Constitution, contemporaneously with its going into effect, by men intimately acquainted with its history from their personal participation in framing and adopting it, and continued by them through a long series of acts of the gravest importance, be entitled to weigh in the judicial mind on a question of construction, it would seem to be difficult to resist the force of the acts above averted to. End quote. End of The Dred Scott Decision by John G. Nicolay and John Hay